While the word robot can trace its etymology to a 1920 play from Czechoslovakia, various iterations of mechanical beings and automata have been around for centuries. Some fascinating examples include the Jacques Dro automata, built by a family of watchmakers between 1768 and 1774. The three automata are lifelike humanoids in the form of children that can draw pictures, write letters of up to 40 characters, and play a keyboard organ. These automata were built to delight the nobility and to help sell watches, and they now reside in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, where they perform for the delight of museum visitors. With today's advances in technology, the concept of artificial people has taken enormous steps forward in appearance and ability. Some notable and celebrated creations include Sophia, Hanson Robotics' media sensation who has been featured on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and the cover of Elle magazine, to Valkyrie, NASA's imposing 6-foot-2-inch tall humanoid who looks like she could star in her own Star Wars spinoff. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, I spoke with Dr. David Hansen, founder of Hansen Robotics, and Drew Watson, Jet's Valkyrie software lead for Jacobs. For this episode, I asked David and Drew to share how they both got into robotics and the advice they would offer to today's aspiring roboticists. We also talked about the potential role that empathetic machines might play in a social distanced world why Jacobs designed NASA's Valkyrie robots to be humanoid and the benefits for doing so, and what are some of the biggest misconceptions people entertain about the future state of robotics and what may be the future realities. Dr. David Hansen is the CEO, Chairman, and Chief Creative Officer of Hansen Robotics. David develops robots that are widely regarded as the world's most human-like in appearance and a lifelong quest to create true, living, caring machines. He worked as a Walt Disney Imagineer, both as a sculptor and a technical consultant in robotics, and later founded Hanson Robotics. As a researcher, David published dozens of papers in materials science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and robotics journals, and wrote two books including Humanizing Robots. David has been featured in the New York Times, Popular Science, Scientific American, Wired, BBC, and CNN. He has received awards from NASA, Tech Titans Innovator of the Year, and the Rhode Island School of Design. David holds a Ph.D. in Interactive Arts and Technology from the University of Texas at Dallas and a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Film Animation Video from the Rhode Island School of Design. Drew Watson is the Software Lead and Deputy Project Manager for the Valkyrie Humanoid at the NASA Johnson Space Center. Drew's work history includes roles at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the U.S. intelligence community. Drew has a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science from the University of Illinois and a Master of Science degree in Computer Science and Autonomous Systems from the Naval Postgraduate School. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you, David and Drew, for joining me today. So to start us off, uh, I've got a question for both of you, just kind of let our audience know a little bit about both of you. And I'm going to start with you, David. Uh, the question is, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into robotics? Oh, sure. Yeah, I got into robotics as a kid, uh, dreaming about the impact that robotics and AI would have on the world. And I was uh, curious uh, about many things about human existence, where we were going with our civilization, art, where we came from, the big questions. 
So I loved the sort of epic implications of science and technology, and I loved science fiction. I, I was a an artist, both an accelerated math and science program and a, a arts magnet high school. As I went into university, I began to play in uh, many creative areas and science and technology for me was a you know sort of creative zone. I took a, a few science classes, but actually went to art school, graduated from Rhode Island School of Design with a degree in film animation video, thinking about how interactive cinema would be the future of art and that robotics and AI would be media for this kind of cinema. And at the same time, it would be a way of crafting an interface between humans and AI when AI became smart, because I thought that was going to happen in the future. AI would be smarter and then ultimately alive and sentient. This is a conviction that I've had for many years. My feeling was we needed to nurture a kind of relationship with our machines. And so the power of imagination and creativity seem to me central to these pursuits. So I've come to AI and robotics from a kind of interesting background. Then I went to work for Disney Imagineering when Marvin Minsky and Danny Hillis and a lot of really amazing robot engineers were there, as well as those scientists. I didn't work directly with them, but I got to see some of the amazing things they were doing, and I got to develop some little robots um, of my own, animatronics. Moving on from there, I got my PhD in interactive arts and engineering from the University of Texas at Dallas. So it was a mixed disciplinary program, making these human-like robots, uh, trying to push the materials and material science, the cognitive science, designing the mechanisms for the facial expressions, doing a little bit of the software development. It was a cross-disciplinary program with the Computer Science School of Computer Science and Arts and Humanities. So then there was the humanities side as well. And so collaborating with scientists and computer scientists and other students, it was kind of a renaissance time. Uh, so we made a whole lot of robots really fast and uh, published in a lot of different journals with different disciplines. As I founded Hanson Robotics, I tried to keep this kind of cross-disciplinary spirit alive. My feeling is that this kind of creative renaissance accelerates everything from the philosophical and ethical inquiry to the science and the engineering, the artistic applications, the end uses. I really celebrate when kids get into robots, robotics because they bring this kind of playful attitude. I also really celebrate what uh, NASA does because my friends at the Jet Propulsion Lab and other NASA engineers often have this kind of playful spirit. And NASA is also about dreaming about the future of humanity and these big cosmic questions. So I'm so excited to get to have this conversation today. Thank you so much. And, and Drew, the same question for you is, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into robotics? My story is probably a little more cookie cutter. Always loved robots, just like David. 
I uh, did my undergrad at the University of Illinois in computer science and went to go work for the U.S. government for a while. I've been a lifelong software developer. Uh, eventually went back to grad school at the Naval Postgraduate School. And while I was there, looked around at uh, what am I going to do next? A lot of the a lot of the fields that were available to me were, were very mature, like smartphone development, mobile app development. I found robotics to be very appealing. My work at Naval Postgraduate School on robotics, robotic perception, because I thought, you know, the field is very immature right now, and you can just have a real, real outsized impact with robotics as opposed to some of the other software engineering uh, thrusts. So I left Naval Postgraduate School and worked at the uh, well, JPL, which David just mentioned briefly. And ultimately, I saw an opportunity to work at NASA Johnson Space Center on Valkyrie, which is one of the only uh, walking humanoids in, in the U.S., and uh, I, I jumped on it, and here I am. It's fantastic. So let's kind of dive into this a little bit. So, David, um, what are some of the issues you're working to solve for using robotics? We are developing robots to be a standard platform for human interaction, human social interaction. First is uh, nonverbal plus verbal, making robots that look uh, very human-like, putting in a dense array of sensors that can sense the human face and facial expressions, generate facial, natural-looking facial expressions. We also developed our own hands and arms, so we're working on grasping and manipulation and the scaled manufacturing of these faces and arms. We have also integrated self-navigating base with LiDAR. So we're looking at this as a standard platform that crosses these different domains. Usually these are separate domains in robotics development and research and putting them all together is a bit of an undertaking. We're at a kind of alpha state with this. We're looking to get this uh, alpha platform out to the world of research. We in previous versions, we put some of these um, these features on walking robots like the Hubo robot, which uh, along with Valkyrie competed in the DARPA Robotics Challenge, you know, for search and rescue. Mm -hmm. So we hope that these kinds of robots can make a difference. But, you know, a walking humanoid robot is very difficult to do to yeah. use in the real world. So these kinds of rolling bases can make a difference. We're working on a hybrid walking rolling base right now that I'm really excited about. We haven't really shown it to the world, but our hope is that with a rolling base or this kind of hybrid, or maybe with a walking base like Valkyrie, eventually uh, Sophia is going to be making a difference in people's lives. We're looking at elder care. We've used our robots in therapeutic applications previously for elder care and autism. Also, entertaining applications, artistic applications, science museums. So we have a number of customers that we're delivering to. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we're trying to push the boundaries of art, treating these robots as a kind of living science fiction, something that we hope uh, inspires kids in an educational context. And then, Drew, how about you uh, with the Valkyrie program? What are some of the issues that you're working to solve for using robotics? Yeah, the Valkyrie program right now is actually uh, nearly exclusively focused on uh, explosive ordnance disposal, uh, bomb disposal. So the bomb disposal is uh, an application space that is really ripe for early humanoid robots. And I'll tell you why. 
And when I say bomb disposal, I'm talking about, think back to like the Boston Marathon tragedy several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, during events like that, bomb technicians, bomb disposal experts, um, they're forced to take really tremendous risk. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And um, anytime you can replace a human being, mm-hmm. um, first responder human being with a robot, you do it. And that's, and that's why we've been focused on this bomb disposal task. And that's not to say that first responders right now don't use robots. They do. In fact, they're one of the most prolific consumers of robotic technology. Mm-hmm. You know, they really embrace the technology. The problem is if you look at the technology they're using, it's essentially the same technology that they used in the 1970s. These bomb disposal robots, it's like a, a tracked vehicle with a single manipulator arm. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine uh, it's a hugely limiting technology for the range of, of tasks that first responders have to tackle day to day. And what happens is, you know, tragically is the limitations of that technology force the first, first responders to use a human being instead of a robot when the technology uh, is too limiting. So by use it, I mean put a human being in close proximity to an explosive. So mm-hmm. our, our thesis here is uh, we want to use NASA's robotic technology to improve the EOD, the bomb disposal space. We think we can do a lot better. So, so, and maybe you, you, I think you're kind of intimating a little bit of, on this next question, but, you know, my question is, you know, why is Jacobs designing NASA, designing NASA's Valkyrie robots to be humanoid? You know, what, what sure. benefits does NASA see a humanoid robot bring that a more machine-like, less humanoid robot might not bring? We get this question a lot. And we're actually designing a next-generation Valkyrie right now, and we're sticking with the humanoid form factor. So before I explain why, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, a custom built robot, a single purpose built robot for one task is going to beat our humanoid all day. It's going to beat any humanoid all day. But our thesis for humanoids is that we can build a more generalized solution to all the tasks that custom robots are built for. You know, we want to build a humanoid platform that in in the future, not, not tomorrow, but in the future can accomplish a real massive range of tasks as opposed to building purpose built robots per task, if that makes sense. So anyway, to your question, uh, why humanoids specifically? So uh, why not a quadruped or some other kind of form factor? Yeah. The answer to that is, I think, pretty, pretty straightforward. So it comes down to matching the design to the environment, right? So the bulk of the modern world, you know, has been built for a single form factor, and that is a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Two arms, two legs, five foot, six foot tall, one head, and there's a lot of things that form factor can do in this world we've built. Driving a vehicle, jumping over some obstacle, using small tools like a power drill, navigating through an office building, whatever it is, human beings can achieve a whole range of tasks that no quadruped is ever going to be able to do and no tracked vehicle is ever going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to capitalize on, on the environment that's been put in front of us. On that same thread, so David, you know, you, you're obviously known for your human-like robots, you know, Sophia, of course, is a prime example, and the Philip K. Dick robot, and Han, and, and you know, the Albert Einstein, and, you know, the list goes on. You know, with what we've got going on now uh, with, you know, the pandemic and social distancing and those kinds of things, is there a special role you see for uh, empathetic machines to play in a social distance world? Yes, absolutely. So. I think that the human-like facial presence is 
really important to the human identity. We take it for granted, but studies show that we're far more effective when we have face-to-face interactions than if we're having voice-only interactions or even screen-mediated interactions where we're seeing video of each other. Mm. The full 3D face-to-face interaction is something that, that we really depend on. We're evolved this way. Our, our brains process that information visually and then fuse it with the verbal interaction. And we're you social creatures. We're evolved to think together and to solve problems together as a, as a group through these modes of communication. So to date, augmented reality and virtual reality are not mature in ways that match the physical presence of of another person. So making high fidelity robots as another approach that augments our reality. So it's another kind of augmented reality. So, uh, you know, instead of virtual characters being superimposed or virtual people, places uh, superimposed over our real world as exists in the conventional augmented reality, we have real presence of a physical robot. Humans respond deeply to the kind of verisimilitude, uh, the realism, if you will. So computer graphics has been very useful for humanity. We look at a lot of different technologies through history, and people always want to push it towards representation, towards looking like people or animals. So figurative arts, cinema, from ancient times to the, the latest blockbuster video games, or uh, serious gaming applications of simulation, it brings a lot of value. We're a uh, part of this Avatar X Prize, which is trying to take a lot of these technologies and putting them into one package, robotics for telepresence. And I'm thinking of it almost like uh, robotic teleportation. Our team is Team Aham. So we're working with the Indian Institute of Science and Technology and Tata, and we are looking at how these technologies can facilitate a kind of robotic teleportation mm. uh, where it's almost like you're there. So you motion capture of the human face and play it through uh, this version of Sophia that we're calling Asha, and it would then play the motions. It would be a hybrid of human AI control of the physical uh, robot presence. You would also have the locomotion. So taking all of these aspects of the social grasping manipulation and locomotion and putting it all into into one package. Mm-hmm. Um, so we demonstrated this with the founder of the XPRIZE, Peter Diamandis, and Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil teleported from Boston through Sophia to speak with Peter Diamandis last March. So it was a real honor for, for our XPRIZE team. It is a, a whole lot of fun to get to work on this, but the serious implications would be that you potentially wouldn't transmit uh, a virus like COVID virus. You could uh, potentially save a lot of jet fuel because you wouldn't have to fly from one continent to another for a face-to-face meeting or collaboration or in a search and rescue situation or a bomb disposal situation with a robot like Valkyrie. By adding in the social aspect too, you could communicate much faster with the people who are in the crisis situation, thereby potentially saving lives. 
So, so if I understand you correctly, then that like on the ground at a geography, there would be robots that you could then control virtually from long distance. So like, I guess, let's say I had a meeting in China tomorrow and I couldn't be there, but I could access a robot who's on site at that location. And then that robot could be my physical proxy, but it would be me communicating through the robot. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, and uh, it can be hard to deal with the latencies of these kinds of remote connections. Mm-hmm. So having the robot partially autonomous becomes really critical in these kinds of applications. So it really is uh, not just one hundred percent remotely controlled, and it's not totally autonomous. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of engineering challenges to achieve something like a real avatar, like you would see in a science fiction movie. Yeah. The movie Avatar. Oh yeah, or there was a. I think it was a Bruce Willis movie, if I remember correctly, where like everybody in society had their own replica of themselves as like a better, stronger, more handsome version of themselves, and that's how they interacted with the world. So it kind of made me think of that. Yeah, surrogate. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. So Drew, let me kind of let me let me turn a little bit on. You know, we live in a state of accelerated technological progress and and none of this stuff happens in a vacuum right it all happens together ai iot big data robotics i mean all these technologies are they're helping to accelerate each other you're working with nasa and you know obviously with the the mission of valkyrie in in terms of bomb disposal and, and that sort of thing so you're seeing that the military aspect of robotics, you know, and in this case, it's, you know, being used to like save lives and protect people and stuff. But what safeguards do you think need to be put in place to ensure robotics and AI development is beneficial and not harmful? Yeah, I mean, as you said, first off, we are building robots to save lives. You know, we're focused on a very narrow use case for our robots, you know, Mm -hmm. diffusing bombs so humans don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are benefits to working on these very, very narrowly defined first responder use cases. It, it really it mitigates a lot of the potential for misuse. Mm-hmm. I think as far as you know, how can it be harmful? I mean, our use case, this life and death bomb disposal mm-hmm. scenario that we've kind of laid out here, it really pushes us away from some of the some of the high level autonomy, mm-hmm. uh, general AI reasoning technologies that it might raise questions. You know, our task is heavily biased towards telepresence, like, like David briefly mentioned, the telepresence mm-hmm. control. When you talk to these bomb technicians, it's, a, it's an operator culture. I mean, they, they've really shown a preference for hands-on control of the robot mm-hmm. uh, and really not a whole lot of demand for the, the kinds of autonomy, the high-level autonomy that you, that you kind of mentioned there. So we, we spent a lot of time uh, designing around that use case uh, remote teleoperation by a human operator. Uh, and that manifests itself as something kind of similar to what David was mentioning, um, a, uh, a really cool like virtual reality control paradigm with the Valkyrie unit. So mm-hmm. when a bomb tech moves his or her arm up, uh, the Valkyrie's arm moves up in, in near real time. Same with the, the head or things like that. So uh, not only is it very effective, it's also a very natural way to control yeah. 44 degree of freedom humanoid walking robot i'm sure you get asked this question a lot but do you think that will we see valkyrie in space 
you know, will there be space applications for Valkyrie or like what, what are some of the other potential applications that you see Valkyrie having? The next gen Valkyrie we're designing is, is really focused on terrestrial applications. There's a lot of history in our, our development group towards developing space robots. Robonaut specifically has been in the space station. As far as other applications for the next generation Valkyrie, uh, I think bomb disposal, really just the beginning as far as applications. And you talked a lot of roboticists, you probably heard this before, but anytime you have dull, dirty, or dangerous jobs mm -hmm. uh, or tasks being tackled by humans, there's the potential for uh, a robot to replace that, that worker in the future. Now, near term, so near term, I could see the exact same robot, uh, Valkyrie or the next generation Valkyrie, that robot that we designed for bomb disposal, uh, I could see that robot used for disaster response. If you think about like a uh, natural disaster response in the mm. US or um, even the, the Fukushima uh, nuclear incident uh, a few mm. years back. So I talked about having a general platform, not a custom built robot. I think that's some of the benefit you get from designing uh, that, that kind of robot. Or, or even more mundane, I said dull. So like even the routine handling of hazardous waste, you know, those aren't jobs that are very appealing for human workers. That's all near term. Longer term, I mean, the sky's the limit. You know, once the technology is there, the number of tasks, it's still a subset of, of human being tasks, but I think it's, it's very, very large. Hmm. Wow, that is interesting. So, yeah, I could see, uh, and don't tell Mike Rowe, but I could see, uh, yeah, it being used to uh, replace a lot of those dirty jobs and, you know, the, the jobs that right now are dangerous for, for people to go into, extreme environments and that sort of thing. David, let me ask you, what are some of the biggest misconceptions people entertain about the future state of robotics? And what do you believe will be the realities? I think some of the biggest misconceptions are that robots are going to take all our jobs in you know the next five years, crash the economy, <laughs> that robots are going to achieve human level capabilities or already have achieved human level capabilities. Other common misconceptions could be that it's fairly trivial, like the, uh, some of the human level capabilities are trivial. And then the <laughs> converse of that is that, you know, some of the things that robots do pretty easily or that machines do are actually really hard. You know, there's a lot of education that's necessary. I, I really like hard science fiction because it, it takes a lot of the sort of science fact and puts it into a palatable, engaging form. And I mm -hmm. think science hard science fiction in a sense is uh, like a scientific educational outreach it may be one of the best tools the consciousness of the machines you know it, we, we often see the depiction of fully living conscious machines in ai science fiction science fiction shows machines that seem to have you know almost miraculous capabilities and then people become confused a lot of engineers get upset about the expectations set by science fiction. My thought is that bringing that kind of dialogue forward can actually be a good thing. It can inspire people to dream. A lot of uh, robotics engineers get into robotics. A lot of kids go in this direction because they were inspired by something that they saw in science fiction that actually doesn't yet exist. And then you know, you're inspired to try to make that happen. 
my hope is that we can then use these tools of misunderstanding in order to pursue better understanding. It is an ongoing challenge. How do we get people to expect realistically the machines to do what they can do today? How do we develop technologies that meet people's positive expectations and you know not get people to say you know rise up against them mm-hmm. machines because because they expect a machine uprising and then my last question for you today is for both of you and, and drew i'm going to start with you and then david i'll turn to you so my question for you drew is what advice would you offer aspiring roboticists entering the field there are probably a lot of paths to get into this field and I can talk about a couple successful ones that I've seen, but I think there are a lot of different ways to get involved in, uh, in robotics. First and foremost, I think it's important to get involved at whatever age or career level you are at right now. I think uh, getting your hands dirty whenever, in whatever way you can with robots is important. At the high school level, one thing I've seen um, that's been very, very effective is the first robotics competition, if you're familiar with that. Um, they host a team out of, out of NASA JSC. And that's probably the best hands-on robotics training you can get as a high school student. Moving up the career progression, other getting involved in, in you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to get involved in humanoid robotics uh, when you're a poor college student. I think there are a lot of other ways, though, to get experience with perception and control. Drones are really cheap right now. So autonomous drone technology, open source technology is um, very available to software de- young software developers. Also. Other competitions too, like the Chris Anderson's DIY RoboCars competition, which is a uh, machine learning based RC car race. I think all those, all that hands-on experience is a common trait that I've seen in a lot of my colleagues in this field. Everyone has, has done a lot of extracurricular robotics work beyond just the classwork. Okay. And then David, what advice do you have for young and aspiring roboticists? See, just to play. Be brave, you know, hands-on, absolutely. Competitions, creative problem-solving competitions are a great way to do it. Some, some of the most exciting developments come from people who, who try to bootstrap an approach. It's always exciting to me to see people who might be otherwise impoverished take whatever materials that they have. We're working with a group in Ethiopia called um, the ICOG Labs. And they just recycle like, you know, old electronic devices into robots. It was developed by a, a, an engineer who built the drones for Ethiopia to guard the, the borders, a guy named Getnet Aspa. And he has this kind of like scrappy approach. I really resonate with that. When I was a graduate student, I didn't have funding. I was uh, sort of self-funding my robots from my student loans. And so I would... Uh, have to build these kinds of robots in a really scrappy way. Later, I was able to do more uh, with some National Science Foundation funding, which I'm very grateful for, and Air Force Research Labs funding and some other funding agencies putting money in. But half of the robots that I was known for and publishing on were really funded in this very scrappy way. So I think that if you're brave and you just plow forward, you can find a way. But it requires that playful and creative spirit. So I think in addition to studying math and the sciences, consider imagination as your best ally in this reason plus imagination. Don't forget to dream. Dream big. 
So you need two wings, right, to fly. You need you need reason and imagination. So yeah, well said. Well, David and Drew, I want to thank you both very much for sharing your insights with us today about uh, robotics. Uh, it's a really fascinating field, and I know just in my lifetime, I you know I'm amazed at what we have seen thus far, and I can only imagine where we'll be in the next five, ten, twenty years. You know what the world will look like. You know, thanks to gentlemen like yourselves and and other engineers, you know, men and women out there. So. Thank you both very much for what you're doing, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much.